in the time before AT&T Fiber Internet. Shame! 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 What did you do, love? I ran out of internet data. And they're making you shame walk. No, it's just how I feel. Shame! Shame! In the time after AT&T Fiber Internet. Nice to have unlimited internet data, right? Right. The dawn of a better internet era with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Check eligibility at att.com slash fiber. Restrictions apply. Seriously, who's blowing up my phone? Oh, yeah. Powerball. Big news. Powerball now draws three days a week. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Christopher Barry D. We talked back in August 2021 about one of his books. He's a true crime author. title of that book we talked about was Talking with Psychopaths and Savages, Mass Murderers and Spree Killers. And today we're going to talk on a different topic, another one of his titles. The title of the book is Serial Killers, World's Most Evil, Journey Deeper into the Darkest of Minds. And what sets these books apart from other books is he actually goes and meets some of these infamous serial killers. But he can talk more about that. So, Christopher Barry D., are you there? I'm here, ready to rock and roll. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming back on the show. I know we had some communication problems, so I'm really delighted that uh, you were very forgiving and came come back on. For people who may not have heard our earlier show, can you talk a little bit about your background? I mean, you have so many books. You have a very long CV. Can you talk a lot about your background and what led you to write this book? Yeah, right. I started off really in the Royal Marines. I was a, a Greenberry Commando, Special Forces, for a number of years. Um, I did interrogation work uh, in Northern Ireland and in the Far East with terrorism. Um, in fact, one of my books is about Jack Roche, the Australian uh, Al-Qaeda terrorist um, and he sent me a mass of stuff on a mem- an encrypted memory stick. Um, he got 10 years in prison out there. He was a bomber. Um, and, and then I I sort of started one writing to serial killers years and years ago before we even had the internet. And um, people like uh, oh, Bank Bianchi, who we're going to meet in a minute, and uh, Arthur John Shawcross, uh, quite a few of them, Dougie Clark, the Sunset Slayer. And then... I wrote a couple. I wrote a book called "Dad, uh, Dad, Help Me, Please," which was about the the, the hanging of a, a young lad back in 1957. Um, two lads were on a warehouse in Croydon in London. Police came up. One of the lads shot the police officer between the eyes, um, and one of the guys was hanged. He was. He, I mean, he, he was a patsy. He was stupid. I actually, the, the book actually got him a posthumous pardon. It was my first book. Uh, God knows how, but it was my first book with Robin O'Dell. Got him a posthumous pardon. Um, it became the Reader's Digest hardback nonfiction first title two years later, and then and then uh, they made the movie um, Let It Have It, Have It, starring Christopher Eccleston. Then I wrote a book called The Long Drop, which was two guys that were hanged in um, 1927. My grandfather was one of the solicitors for one of the men, Oscar, Captain Oscar Berry Tompkins. And then I started, um, it was just all fluke, really. And, and really what happened was a London TV producer uh, saw my ex- news cuttings and press about um, the hanged boy 
uh, I did a program and then two years later he said Chris how would you like to go to the United States and interview those serial killers that you've been writing to and this is going way back then the the, the programs there were 12 I think rather bland title of the serial killers but that was the first time in in history in television and criminal history that anyone was allowed to go into a prison with a tv crew and interview these people and for them to say what they wanted to say um, and then broadcast it wow um, today everybody's at it i mean you go on online now on to uh these different channels and you'll see lots of people interviewing serial killers and murderers in prison. Um, but I, we were the first. And as a result of that, these books started coming out with the killer's own words. And then I developed the travelogue style. And now I've had some 40 books published, even in Japan. I mean, they gave me a, I got a copy of my book from Japan, actually, and I can't read it because I can't understand what it is. <laughs> but Russia, Poland, Germany, France, obviously in America, about 15 different countries. And, and I'm now, by fluke, um, the world's number one true crime writer. And that's, wow. that's it. That's the history, really, in a nutshell. Congratulations. That's amazing. So you were there even before this phenomenon kind of is least taken over in the States. I think true crime is the number one podcast, you know, genre. But, uh, I mean, meeting some of these people, you wrote about this, You, the U.S. produces the most serial killers, violent country. Um, can you talk kind of about some of maybe some of the, your first interviews on that serial killer show you did? And how was that distributed? Was it distributed TV or to VCR? Or, well, um, it, I mean, it, it, it went on TV. Uh, there was a bit of an uproar at first because everybody kicked off and said, well, you can't allow these people to say what they want to say. But before we did it, we actually spoke to Next to Kin and they said, well, no, that's that's we understand that. You know, my attitude is if, you know, I want to hear what these people are, why they do what they do. Um, and, and so that's that was really the reason for it, it we didn't I did, I've never written for money I've never written or do TV for money I do it because I love it and I think that I always I mean with my first killer was Michael Bruce Ross at Connecticut he was the first one I went first of all and got him on audio tape and then we went over with the film crew and as a result of interviewing Michael um, he's he's now been executed at Summers Prison. He was executed a while back. But I cleared up two cold case homicides wow. um, for um, the Crystal Run Police and um, the New York State Police. That of Paula Pereira, he admitted that to me on camera for the first time, and he admitted the murder of a little girl um, for the first time, um, and that got him. And then he also admitted... Um, the he murdered two little girls, uh, schoolgirls, but he admitted what he did to their bodies after he killed them, which the prosecutor, Bulldog Satty, went absolutely nuts when he heard it, when he read it, and um, Michael was executed. Um, what was his, can you say his name again, Michael? What was his last name? Michael Bruce Ross, R-O-S-S. R-O-S-S, thank you. Michael Bruce Ross. And he, he looked, he looked very... Um, bookish. He looked like the boy next door with his glasses. He was a prudential insurance salesman knocking on doors. 
And I got on very, very well with his arresting detective. Um, that was uh, Mike Malchik. Um, and then we also did another killer in, um, interviewed another killer in Trenton State Prison, which Mike, Mike, Mike Malchik arrested, James Paul. He, uh, so we did him. He was a serial killer. Yeah, we got two in one go there. And so that was kind of the start. I mean, how much do you know offhand how many of these people that you have interviewed? How many serial killers? Well, I've almost lost count because not all of them are serial killers. One was Ronnie DeFeo, that's the Amityville horror guy. Um, I interviewed him at um, Greenhaven Correctional Facility in New York. Um, another one I really love meeting was Harvey the Hammer Carrigan, who's at MCS Stillwater um, in, in Minnesota. Uh, built like an ape. Uh, when I had a, a, a full contact, you know, he wasn't shackled. I went in with him. Uh, he, he, I've got hundreds of letters from these killers, um, and uh, he actually threatened me in a veiled threat. And um, I was in, like in a room with him, un, unshackled, like I was with Bianchi. Um, but he, he's a beast. I mean, he's probably killed more people than Ted Bundy, really. Really? What was his? He was he was he a female killer or a male killer? Like he killed men or women? Both. Uh, young, young girls and women, yeah. So, he bludgeoned them to death with a tire iron or a hammer. That's what we call him, half the hammer. He got a very soft voice, built like an ape, about six foot three, immensely strong, hand, plate, plate-like hands. But he, he threatened me. He he said, "If this goes wrong, Christopher," he was leaning over. To, he said, "If this goes wrong, Christopher." He said, I know where you live in America. And I said to him, look, Harv, it's, it's on the stationery. You can see that. He said, no. He said, but I know what your wife looks like. And you drive a silver Mercedes. I know where your children go to school just up the road from you in Shedfield. Wow. He said, if you do anything wrong, I've got friends there that look after me. <laughs> I mean, you've inter interviewed some of the nastiest people ever. I mean, what was it like to see? I mean, in this book, you, you met John Wayne Gacy. What was your first impression of him? Well, Gacy was, it was only a very short, I was in to see somebody else actually, and I managed to come my way in, in to see Gacy. The interesting thing about this is my books now are a bit of a travelogue, a bit of a Bill Bryson, and you've read them. And, you know, you know my style. And what I do is I don't talk at the reader. I'm, I'm with them on a journey, and they get to identify with me and my black sense of humour. And that's why my books are sort of very laid back in many ways. Accessible, very accessible. Yeah, you can follow. You've it. got to be. I think it's a very grim subject, but you've got. To, but you've got to lighten the load sometimes. Uh, what I love about the Gacy thing more than it actually interviewing that piece of scum was the fact we 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 were we we went to a place called Chester, which is about a mile and a half away from Minard Correctional Facility, and it was the home of Popeye. And, uh, and and it's where the Seeger, the guy who invented Popeye. And and the interesting thing was the town was incorporated by this guy years and years and years ago. And his wife came from Chester in England. And that's why it became Chester, Illinois. And that's where Mark Twain was a, a paddle boat, you know, captain. And, and a quaint little village with a, with a statue, a foot statue of Popeye in the main square. And then you drive along that road by the side of old Mississippi there, and you come to this very castle-like facade of Menard CF. And it's a grim-looking prison, I can tell you. It's one of the old big houses. 
And, and Gacy was a sloppy, horrible, greasy little man, dirty, oily, sweaty palms. And um, I, I'd actually, um, I, I'd actually film, been filming in uh, where he lived uh, at Somerdale Avenue, and uh, I got a presentation cup from um, the cops there, Des Plaines Police Department, and and I spent a lot of time with. Um, uh, Joe Kozenzak, who was the one of the arresting officers, uh, interesting, interesting guy. Not the most interesting, the most boring one I've ever interviewed was Henry Lee Lucas down at uh, Huntsville. But um, yeah, I mean, Gacy was all right, but just horrible. And just to debunk one little thing, the paintings sold by Gacy on the internet, or allegedly by him on the internet, are not fake. Uh, he had another inmate. Um, paint them, wow. and he he basically um, well he didn't even sign them. They sort of copied the signature, which is a scam that a lot of prisoners pull these days. And he yeah, sold true crime memorabilia is a big thing right now. Like a lot of this kind of yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're worthless now. I think they're probably more collectible because they are fake, and there is the story behind them. Um, there's that. I mean, Bianchi Hillside Strangler pulled the same stunt. Um, you know, they're, all, they're always on a scam of some sort of sorts. <laughs> I mean, they, they're very kind of similar things, self-important, uh, manipulative types. There, there's, there's got, do you sense these similarities in these characters when you see one after the other? Um, yeah, you're right. You're actually correct. Correct. There is a controlling uh, aspect to them. Um, holier than thou up their own backside sort of, uh, um, thing, um, but that actually that I, I i can actually um manipulate them far more because what i do is i let them think they're manipulating me bianchi is the greatest manipulator one of them the other one is, is, is jr robinson the bodies in the barrels guy mm. um they're arch manipulators but I, uh, I i get that i you know i'm into reverse psychology and mk ultra and mind control and I, I get it and i know exactly what turns them on what turns them off when to push a switch, when not to push a switch, uh, like I did with Shawcross, he, Arthur Shawcross, the monster of the rivers, he, he started to sweat and get a bit angry with me, but just reach forward and touch him on the knee and say, look, you know, don't do that because your missus is waiting outside and she's going to go ape, you know, if you kick off. Um, but you've got one other thing that your viewers should understand is that these, these men are cowards. Interesting. So they're physical cowards, you think, in there? When you're with them face to face, but they're big. They're big. Some of them are big guys. I mean, you know, for instance, um, Dougie Clark, Sunset Slayer. He, he, that I interviewed him, Death Row in San Quentin, and he came out heavily shackled, swearing. The language was blue. You know, he's like a New York longshoreman swearing, and it took me ten minutes to calm him down before we could get him on camera. But he had a sense of humour, you know. He he wasn't manipulative. He was just pissed off with the prison for not letting him wear his wear his pullover instead of his prison overalls. <laughs> but a lot of them, yeah. Um, you're right, Gacy, extremely um, extremely manipulative. He tried to sue um, Brian Dennehy, is it the, the actor? For I didn't know that. Yeah, he really? tried to. Sue him. Wow. For, on what cause? What cause of action? Well, uh, uh, a misrepresentative called him a serial killer uh, when he'd only been convicted of two. 
of all the 33 <laughs> or whatever it was. And then the other one that was very bad was Schaefer, the cop killer down in Florida. He he actually sued Robert Resler of the FBI for a similar nitpicking, stupid thing. Bianchi sued um, a playing card company called Eclipse in California. Uh, it, it bankrupted the company um, because they had to defend it. Right. The couple got divorced because of the stress. They lost their home. And Bianchi won it, but he was only award, awarded 50 cents. And it was like a play, just had its picture on a playing card, right? It was a copyright violation? That's it, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a jerk. I mean, didn't he get put to death? Or is he still in prison? No, he's in Walla Walla. Uh, I interviewed him there in Washington State Penitentiary. I spent a week in there, the run of the place. But, oh, yeah, shall we go on to Bianchi? Yeah. Uh, well, Bianchi's chapter two in the book, um, he, he was one of the notorious hillside stranglers with Angela Bono, his half-cousin, down in um, down Boston. in L.A. And 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 uh, he, he killed a number of prostitutes and tortured, to, killed two little schoolgirls, left their bodies dumped on a uh, on a hillside, um, which he did all of the bodies. And um, I never got to interview Bono, uh, but I did get I, I was writing to Kenneth for about two years um, while he was protesting his innocence um, and he was sending me hundreds of letters and documents and then I I then said to him well you killed three girls in Rochester didn't you you know you 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 did the the, the three the, the initial killers wasn't it was called the alphabet murders they had all the same front letters on their names or something yeah, double initial murders or alphabet murders. And uh, and so he said, no, I didn't do that. Well, I knew that he did it. And, and you know, even the Rochester police knew he did it, but they couldn't pin it on him. And um, the bottom line was I, 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 he, he, he said he couldn't have been the L.A. murders murderers because his DNA was different. He said, you know, non-secreter or something. Right, yeah. And I said, well, look, you know, and he said, I can prove it. I've got all the documents in my cell. I said, well, send them to me. Well, he was very choosy. He sent me a whole pile of documents, but he missed six pages out. And I, I contacted Robert Beams at the FBI, who was a blood specialist, and he sent me Bianchi's blood, result, uh, DNA, uh, blood results, and it proved that Bianchi was lying. Now, that happened after I got a visiting order from him. And literally, while I was filming in the States, he was so pissed off with me that he almost refused to see me because all this had crossed in the post. <laughs> but I went in and I was in a small cubicle with him and he was unshackled and he just sat there across the table and the, the room was locked. And he kept staring at me and he's got, as I said to you before, William, he's got the eyes of a dead you know, dead eyes of a, a great white shark. He's, he's a horrible, vile man. And he kept staring at me. And I could feel the heat, the evil coming off of him. It was like I could smell it. And I I, I just got up and I walked around his, his side of the table and I put my arm around his shoulder and I, I said, come on, give us a kiss, you miserable fucker. I'll come all the way from England to see you. And he, he his brain stopped working. He couldn't figure out what I was doing. He, You know, it was all bullshit he was giving me. And, all of a sudden he switched off and he started laughing and i got an hour's interview with him and then when the guards came to get him out of the room as he got to the door with the guards with him 
He turned around, he said, you ever come near me again, I'll tear your fucking head off. <laughs> you said looking into his eyes was looking into abyss. I mean, the guy was a monster. He had the craziest look on his. He has really like kind of slitted dark eyes. Really, yeah. The other good thing was I did actually see him twice after that. He he boasted about he was in a special housing yours shoe they call it or something. And 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 I had the run of the place. And I thought I'll go. He, he always boasted that he had the biggest cell in the prison, and he was the, a trustee, and he had the run of the place, and he had this big comfortable cell. So I said to the warden, I want to go and visit him. So I went up onto the shoe and, and you know, you, you guys out there know you've got a yellow line and you mustn't cross the line because they're spitting throw urine and stuff at you. And I, it was, I think it was cell number eight. And I walked wrong, along the yellow line and, and the guard said, Chris, don't go over that yellow line, Christ's sake. And on the way back, I thought I'd walk up to his cell and he was asleep in this tiny little bunk, concrete bunk. It was horrible. And he had his headphones on, listening to his music. And I said, uh, hello, Kenny, it's your Chris. Come to see you in your big house. <laughs> he went ballistic. And the guards came up and they said, look, Mr. Bianchi, if you don't be a good boy, we'll put you down the hole. And he, he said, I'm going to sue him. I'm going to sue the prison. So they threw him down a hole for a month. And then, but before prior to just before he went off, I, I actually shot onto the exercise yard, and there he was walking through the snow with his baseball hat pulled down over his head, face, and he never looked at me. After that, I went to Bellingham with the film crew, where he killed the two girls, Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder. And I sent him postcards everywhere I went where he killed. I sent him a postcard, and I said, "Wish you were here." <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, that guy was a monster. He was a real monster. It's interesting because you mentioned in your book he was interviewed by Salerno. So Salerno was an uh, LAPD detective who interviewed Bianchi or was tied to Bianchi and Richard R Rodriguez, two real hard. Ramirez, yeah. yeah. And um, also one of the strangest things about Bianchi was this woman, Veronica Compton, who was trying to fake a crime to get him out of jail. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Veronica, I met her at the Western Washington Correction Center for Women at Gig Harbor with a film crew. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, very, very attractive woman, incredible head of hair. I mean, that, back in the days when she was um, down in Hollywood, they called her a Miss Whitlap. She used to service all the bench judges and top coppers and, you know, brothel type stuff. Very pretty girl, had a body to die for. And um, what happened was that she she became a pen friend of, of Bianchi while he was in the LA County jail. And um and he they cooked up a plan to get him released. And the deal was that he he managed to get hold of a rubber finger of a kitchen glove and he, he ejaculated into it and that, and he tied it with a bit of cord and at a visit she brought some books in and then when he had finished allegedly read the book might have been a bible for arg i think i remember he shoved this this stuff into the spine of the book and her deal was that she would go to washington to kill a woman in washington a woman called kim breed and put this semen into her so it would prove that the dna or the semen in this woman couldn't have been bianchi because bianchi's locked locked up in the la county jail but unfortunately for Veronica, she picked on a girl who was a martial art expert. <laughs> oh man! And, and she she gave Veronica a damn good idea. 
and then Veronica was arrested trying to get on a plane. But interestingly enough, um, Veronica was also writing to Dougie Clark, the Sunset Slayer, and their plans were that if he got released, they would open up a mortuary to have sex with the dead. Wow, that's crazy. But another funny thing is, Veronica is now released. I mean, she tried to escape once. Um, she she used to send me video cassettes that were like plastic clear of the most perverse stuff you could ever imagine. But she actually married a prison psychiatrist. <laughs> That's so bizarre. The whole Sunset Slayers, too, were really sick, like deviant uh, BDSM types, right? Well, Isn't yeah, I, I actually, in my books, I mean, I've met Dougie, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, Carol Bundy, no relation to Ted Bundy, was this fat, goggle-eyed little pig of a woman that was having affairs with everybody. She had a bit of money. And and she was knocking around with a country and West singer, uh, John Jack Murray. Now, it was those two that did the, the killings, and that I'm 100% sure of. Um, then when the police started to close in on Murray, she lured him into his camper van, and while she was tonguing his ass out, excuse the language, she called it anal linctus. While she was doing that, she took out a revolver and blew his brains all over the inside of this truck. And then she rang up Dougie, who was in bed with a girl, and said, Doug, I've got a problem. Can you help me do something? And Dougie, like a fool, got went and got got over to her, and they put the head in a, a plastic bag and put it in a dumpster. So she then implicated Dougie Clark. The other thing she did with Dougie, you'll probably remember, your viewers will remember the Exie Wilson murder down there, where... Exie's head was chopped. Chop. Her body was found outside a diner, and uh, and Exie's head was found in Doug Clark's freezer. Wow. Well, no, it found in a, it was found in a chest in an alleyway that they thought it was somebody thought it was treasure, but it was Exie's head. And it turned out that Dougie'd had that in his freezer, and uh, the police said he'd been he was using it for he was making it up like a Barbie doll and using it for oral sex. Now, Dougie denied that 100%. And I have seen hundreds of documents from the police which prove that they work with, because they couldn't now charge John Jack Murray because Murray's like beheaded. <laughs> so so she, she, then, she then blames Dougie Clark for it all. And the police take a big backhander from her, fiddle the evidence, I mean, Clark's a, a, a complete fool. He was stupid. But I don't think he should be on death row. I really don't. There were some really vicious crimes that took place in L.A., uh, like 70s, 80s, just, a, just some of the most vicious stuff. Freeway killers. Kraft was killed like 100 people. It was a freaking slaughter. It was a slaughter uh, back then. Can you talk about William Hirons? He was the one who abducted women and, and put them in kept them right in in dungeons well no not not exactly no bill hirons very softly spoken guy i interviewed him in prison it was an open prison back then he was in very quiet man um very very respectful um he he he, he was accused of these murders in chicago chicago murders um and one of them was abduction of a little girl who he'd got out of a window and chopped her up in a basement and he got done. Now, I 
I actually got, again, you know, and I'm a fair man, if a bloke wants to be put in the electric chair or strapped down on a gurney, I'll be the first one to pull the switch. But if there's a doubt about something, and when I spoke to the prosecutor, and I also spoke to the judge of the hiring's trial on camera, and I said, Judge, the, the, the book by Dolores Kennedy, um, on hirings, I said, there's some doubt about this, you know. And the judge actually turned around to me, he said, well, yeah, I agree with you. He probably didn't do any of it, but there was a lot of promotion in those days. The cops needed promoting, the prosecutor wanted to become a judge. He said, and I just went along with it. And Hirons was the one, he wrote all that stuff on the wall too, right? Like all kind of creepy handwriting. That, well, yeah, uh, catch me if you can, allegedly. Allegedly, and, you know, and I'm going to say that because, again, anybody that kills a little girl ought to be drawn and courted. But I think that when you this is the thing about when you meet these people, and then you go and you meet the cops, and then you go to the crime scenes, and if something doesn't quite smell right, and you've got to remember back then, you know, in Chicago, back right back then, the police were so corrupt, you know, the whole system was bent from top to bottom. Um, the, the police were um, a lot of the police were committing burglaries at night and then going out in the daytime to clear them up. <laughs> That's the you know uh, job security at its best, right? Yeah. Uh, some people may not know about this name, but you cover John David Geese or Guise Canaan. Who is yeah. who is he? Uh, can talk about yeah. him? John Canaan's an English killer. Uh, publicly school educated, speak, speaks with, uh, you know, uh, a plum in his mouth, uh, you know, hello. Uh, the utter total bullshit, a very handsome, a lady killer. Women used to fall for him left, right and centre, romantic roses, but he didn't have a penny to his name. He was a liar through and through. And he was convicted of the murder of a woman in Bristol in England called Shirley Ann Banks, blonde girl. And the bottom, to cut the story short, what happened was when the police, he arrest, they arrested him on, an, on a robbery charge in Leamington Spa. And then when they went to his house in the garage, they found Shirley Banks's mini car. And the, it had been repainted and the number plate was SLP 386. Now remember that, SLP 386. I worked with the cops down there, even the Somerset police. And Detective Chief Superintendent Brian Saunders and I were having, I think we went for a walk or something, and he said, I can't figure out why SLP 386, Christopher. He said, I've been looking at star signs. <laughs> and this is a lead homicide cop. And it suddenly twigged us, says, Susie Lampelew, SLP, Susie Lampelew's third victim, 1986. And he looked at me, said, Jesus Christ. Susie Lamplew was an estate agent that he'd murdered, allegedly murdered in 1986, the same year. I also, and then I also got him for the Sandra Court murder in Bournemouth on May Day, uh, on May Day bank holiday. So anyway, John Canaan is now in prison for life for the Shirley Banks murder. And I'm working with the Metropolitan Police trying to pin the... Susie Lamplew murder on him and he's not saying a word and uh and so 
they're trying to figure out what car he used to abduct Susie. And I said, well, at the time, he had a, a red Ford Sierra car. He borrowed it from the prison hospital cook when he was on the day release for much earlier offences, way back, rape offences. He said, how do you know that? I said, it's in his letters to me. The police spent a month going through every scrapyard in London and found the red Sierra car. And in it, they found the DNA of John Canan and they found the DNA of the now missing Susie Lampelou. But when it went to the Crown Prosecution Service for a charge, the Crown Prosecution, the, the can't prosecute service in this country, said, well, that doesn't put them in the car at the same time. So they're still looking for a body. Wow, that's ter that's too bad. Oh, man, that's that's terrible. So, I mean, how many people do you think that that guy killed, Keenan Canan? Canan, uh, John, I think he probably killed. He definitely killed three, but also there were a whole load of rapes and uh, very vicious violent assaults, which he had been convicted. He's been convicted of, and there's probably a couple of other homicides, but. We can only just say, I can only say definitely for three because he's linked. He was linked to the Sandra Court murder in Bournemouth because one, he said he'd never been to a car auction there in his life, which I know he had. But when I was in Bristol with Detective Brian Saunders, I was looking for a black bin liner bag full of crap that had come out of John's BMW car. And in it, I found a screw up pay and display ticket. And I said to Brian Saunders, what's this? And he said, I don't know, it's a bit of paper. And I unpeeled it because it was sticky and, and, and it had him in pool in a pay and display car park within an hour of Sandra gone missing. And there was a lot of other things. There was a letter written that his handwriting, it was similar to his handwriting and stuff like that. But John's in prison now and he's not saying a word to anybody because he thinks he's going to get released next year. Wow. So he could be released. And you went and met him in prison. Is that correct? Uh, no, I met him. I only met him once, and that was at the in the in the cells at the Old Bailey when he came up for appeal. Gotcha. Um, and then you also actually went and visited a woman too, right, Patricia Wright? Yeah, uh, not so much. Uh, again, Patricia Wright. She, she. This was a particular. I mean, she. She was. I think she's dead now. I think she, what happened was that she was on. She was serving a life sentence, but she I think she had cancer and on humanitarian grounds, they released her before she died. Uh, black woman. Um, she had a lovely family and she was she was married to a, a little gay guy, uh, a little gay guy who uh, I mean, this is all sordid stuff. And anyway, but she conned this little guy to write out two life insurance policies. <laughs> so and then she, forced, then she forced his signature on them, and then and then she kept up the payments. Well, his his body was found in a caravanette thing in downtown. I think it was LA or somewhere like that. Downtown, and in the heat, and this whole bloody thing stunk. Some people walking past it, and the stench coming out of this van. Anyway, the police went into the van. And they found some fingerprints in there, and one of them was on on a mirror, and it was from a man aptly named Slaughter. Oh, I think his name was Gary Slaughter, something like that. Anyway, they arrested him, and what had happened was she'd paid she'd paid Slaughter to kill this guy and get the insurance policy. 
right? And I mean, she, if the guy had only been dead about a day and she submitted the claims for this insurance policy. But what she didn't do, she didn't pay slaughter his, his whack of the money. So he, he, he turned on her. He's in prison and she ended up with a life sentence. Now, she vehemently denied to me in correspondence and, you know, whatever. And her whole family believed her that she hadn't been involved in it. And I thought to myself, and there was a lot of stuff on the internet. She had a big following on the internet, like a bit like Dali Routier has. Yeah. A big a big following on the internet supporting her, trying to get her out. But when I examined all of the documents, and there were hundreds, and when I cross-references dates and insurance policies and other stuff, I eventually put all of this to her sister. And her sister then said, Christopher, you're right. My my sister, she, Arlette, Patricia, it was, Arlette was a sister, but Patricia did it. And then Patricia wrote to me, and it's in my book, and she she said, yes, I, I did it. She took the, unlike many of these other people, right? Most of these guys always say the serial killers say they're innocent. Somebody else did it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, um, Harvey the Hammer had a, a unique defence. I mean, uh, when I, I interviewed him at, in MCF Stillwater, uh, he said it uh, He said it was all their fault, Christopher. I said, well, he said, I, only, I had to kill them because they would have accused me of raping them and then I would have been locked up and I never raped anybody. And I said to him, Harvey, I said, I could believe that. On t you have been convicted of murder before. I said, you know, this was way back in Alaska when he was a 20-year-old soldier. And he went down and he was on, he went to various prisons, including at the Rock Alcatraz. I said, but I could, I could believe it if it was twice, but not 50. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty crazy that uh, how many of these people you've seen are notorious Notorious killers, like just the worst type of people ever. Somebody yeah. in here says you, they would be taking a shower after after meeting all these people. I mean, what's it like for you to have all that kind of, uh, you know, processing all that death and murder? Uh, well, like I said, I'm an ex-Marine commando. I mean, I, yeah, when I'm interviewing these people, William, I've got ice going through my veins. I, I don't, I don't. I don't react to anything they say because if I did, I'd be useless at my job. I wouldn't be able to write. I wouldn't be able to do my job properly. Um, I'd completely mentally detach from it. I'm immune to it. It's like I've had a COVID vaccination. I can't get COVID sort of thing. But but I have got a heart. And the, 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 one of the reasons I do it, because occasionally, like with Kenneth McDuff down in um, Texas or um, Michael Ross or Arthur Shawcross, um, I know, you know, I, I I meet the next of kin and they want closure. They would like their child back, the body back. And, and on several occasions, I've managed to achieve that. And I imagine that if that was me and that was my son or my little girl that had been raped and dumped like trash, I would want somebody to please give me some, let me have her body back so I can bury it, you know. 
Christopher, we're at about 40 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add? Anything I missed before we wrap up this discussion about your book? No. And if, any, if you've got any other questions, anybody's got any questions, fire them quickly at me and I'll do my best. Yeah, let's put it up. Any questions from uh, people listening? And your website is your full name, ChristopherBarryD.com, correct? Correct. And the best place to get your books, do you like to have, do you have signed copies or do you just recommend Amazon? I mean, you go to my you go to my website and you can click straight onto Amazon. You find you find all the books on. If you, in fact, if you're Japanese, you can get a copy. If you're Russian, you can get a copy. So you could do, you do quite well. <laughs> um, yeah, and so that we this is the second book we talked about. The first one again was people can go back and listen to that. Is talking with psychopaths and savages, mass murderers and spree killers. That's from August 2021. And the title of this book is Talking with Serial Killers: World's Most Evil Journey deeper into the darkest of minds. And those are some pretty dark minds. Casey. I'll Beach. tell you what, next time, if you ever come, have me on, dare to have me on again. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I've got a book, a book out now. It's called Talking with Female Serial Killers. Um, and that might interest the guys. It might warn the guys that when you go to bed at night, look under it, make sure there's an iron ice pick under there. Leave with one eye open. I've got a uh, question for Barbara G. She says, how often, often do you help the police with more info from the correspondence you get. Um, hi, Barbara. Yeah, it's um, in England. Uh, British police are very insular. Uh, they don't like journalists or writers um, meddling in their business, uh, which is a great shame because sometimes we've got a tremendous amount of info that they haven't got. But in America, God bless America, I tell you what happens: the the police are extremely proactive with us guys out there. Um, they net we network very well. Uh, law enforcement do a damn good job, um, you know, especially when you've got, in, you know, you got sort of statewide killings. Um, yeah, no, I, I give the I give the American law enforcement from um, the FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, anything. I give them ten out of ten. Oh, that's cool. And then uh, Jen asks, how do you keep your sanity and not go into a deep depression being around these types of people? Right, Janet. Well, this is an easy one. I drink half a bottle of vodka before I go to bed tonight, some cigarettes, and I, I and I go to sleep like a light. And I wake up in the morning and think, thank God, what a lovely day. Nice. That's good. Great conversation. Definitely a gifted storyteller, verbally and in the book. So people go check out these books. Author's name is Christopher Barry D. Title of the book is Talking with Serial Killers, World's Most Evil Journey deeper into the darkest minds. Thank you so much, Christopher. Cheers. Bye. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Stay there. Stay there. We could all use a real vacation right about now. Lucky for us, Princess Cruises has a port right here in SF. Starting at $99 per day, Princess can take you to the beaches of Mexico, the tropics of Hawaii, the glaciers of Alaska, or along the California coast. That's right, just $99 per day. Set sail with California's cruise line. Call 1-800-PRINCESS, visit princess.com, or contact your travel advisor today. Terms and restrictions apply. Promotional pricing ends November 30th, 2021. Ships are Bermuda and British Registry. Before booking, consult the CDC website at www.cdc.gov. Seriously, who's blowing up my phone? Oh, yeah. Powerball. Big news. Powerball now draws three days a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player claim.